I'm Heather Passero, career consultant working in careers, employability and student enterprise. And I'm Daisy Victoria, first year politics and international relations student at the University of Southampton. For the very first episode of the Class Ceiling podcast, we interviewed Mark E. Smith, President and Vice-Chancellor of our University of Southampton. We had a wide-ranging and interesting discussion about issues surrounding social mobility in the context of higher education, as well as learning about Mark's own social mobility journey. We hope you enjoy listening and that some of the subjects we cover will help and support an increased sense of inclusion and belonging among staff and students at University of Southampton. Please sit back and enjoy the very first episode of the Class Ceiling Podcast. So good morning, Mark, and uh, thank you so much for offering your time this morning. Yeah, thank you for joining us and welcome to the first ever episode of the Class Ceiling Podcast. Are you ready to start? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great pleasure to be here. And I'm very interested in this series that you're doing. So thanks for inviting me and being your first, I was going to say victim, but uh, I'll assume <laughs> it's your, your, your first interviewee. Guest. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so we'll start off with some kind of baseline questions. What does social mobility mean to you? How do you relate to the term? And can you tell us about your own social mobility journey? Yeah, well, so let's just start with how I see the definition of uh, social mobility. So social mobility means effectively taking the barriers away and allowing people to find the right role in society, no matter where they're starting from. Because there's no sense in which where you start off because of your kind of, and I know we're going to talk about class a little bit later, but also your kind of social surroundings mean that you don't have inherent talent. And what social mobility means to me is being able to give people opportunities, level the playing field of advantage so that people end up doing the role that they're most interested in and they're most suited in terms of their contribution to society. And where you come from doesn't have to be any determiner, really, of that. So social mobility is the whole process of people being able to find out what suits them, what they're interested in, what their real skills are, and being able to take the barriers away that might otherwise prevent them from doing that. So that's how I define kind of social mobility. I think that, and that's why I'm a great believer in the kind of levelling and important role that, that education has to play, because the way I relate to it is, you know, look, you know, it's sometimes easier to look back and you don't realise when it's happening to you that it's happening to you, basically. But I realised, looking back, how important education was both at school and then at university for allowing me to have the life that that I've had and therefore it wasn't called social mobility uh, in those days but the ability of the school to find out and then support you in what your real strengths were to encourage you rather than saying oh you can't do that you know you don't realize how important those things are until you kind of look back at them but on reflection 
I realised that they were hugely important. So, for example, I know people, generation before me, who would have really likened to have taken, say, for example, physics at a particular school, but because there wasn't a physics teacher, they that was not one of the options open to them. So that automatically, now I'm not saying they would have been or wouldn't have been any good at it, but you know, the opportunity wasn't there. I, all of the opportunities I needed were, I was lucky enough to, to have them. And it shouldn't be down to luck, though. It should be down to a, a system that is absolutely geared to being able to uh, help people find that opportunity, no matter, again, where you come from. So just because you come from an area or you go to a private school where they're able to put more resources in, that extra opportunity then shouldn't count as an advantage against those people who haven't had that opportunity. So how I relate to it is I was lucky I went to a standard state comprehensive I standard. It was a good one, you know, in the sense of it gave me the opportunities I wanted. And therefore, you know, I realised looking back how lucky I was to have them. But as I say, it shouldn't be down to luck. And that's, and that's what I think today we're much more proactively trying to do to make sure that those opportunities are there for all. And, and could you tell us about your, your own social mobility journey? Yeah. So it, it does relate back to having uh, teachers, first of all. So it, the importance of schools can't be underestimated. And I think if you look at current government policy, and we can talk about that in a bit more detail in a second, I think it's, it, it's more and more realising how important that stage is. And if you, if you stretch back to uh, the early years of a person's life, it's difficult to underestimate how early it starts that you, you set the direction of travel of a person and therefore uh, making sure that you, well, first of all, don't stereotype, but also you make sure that you uh, give opportunities to people and they aren't closed off at too early a stage, I think it's important. So that, that, the, we can talk about that a little bit more if you're interested about how I see government policy developing. The question was one that pertained to, to myself. And I had teachers who... A, were very good. That's important, you know. Never underestimate the importance of having a good teacher. And what I mean by good is they were they were they were interested in the discipline. They weren't doing it just as a job. You know, they actually conveyed that kind of enjoyment and love for a discipline. But more than that, they were willing to kind of go the extra mile. And if they saw someone in the class that they thought uh, would benefit from being stretched, they were willing to do that rather than saying, "Well, we, we've done our job." You know, that that's it basically. And so. I was really inspired by uh, the teachers I had at school. And I also have to say that where I wanted to go uh, in terms of career at the early stages was also very much shaped by, you have to say, television. And there used to be something, there still is actually, um, something called the Royal Institution Lectures, which uh, occur every Christmas, the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, which used to be televised. They used to be, and, and, and I remember sitting them, I was always fascinated in physical science. So, you know, I had the inherent interest. But then you used to get these Royal Institution lectures uh, at Christmas. And I thought, I really want to be like them. So that kind of set the, the direction. Now, one thing looking back on that, of course, is if I think about it, and probably still true to, it'll be less true, but still true to a certain extent. Of course, they were people who I could see were probably like me, you know, they were white guys, basically. And I think, looking back on it, of course, I wasn't thinking in these terms in those days, but looking back on it, I can understand this all this thing about role models because when I didn't know what they were like as people or anything like that. I didn't know how good they were or anything. But they did look 
like me, basically. So I thought, well, I could do that at a very superficial level. But that kind of direction of travel about how you identify with people and you see yourself, at least some characteristics in that person, I think, you know, does set a direction. So I think we have, we're much more alive to that today, though. I think we realise that these role models are hugely important. And then the final step at the early stage of my career was uh, uh, getting a place at Cambridge. So that clearly uh, was very important in terms of what it allowed me then to do. Again, not re- didn't really think about it. I mean, the reason I went to Cambridge is very straightforward. One is I wanted to go to the best university I could for my discipline, which was physics, and there was no doubt Cambridge was that. And also it was also the closest university to where I was brought up. So I, I wasn't that adventurous at, at that part of my life. So, you know, it was only 30, 35 miles away from where I was brought up. Now, looking back, that was hugely important for, for perhaps some straightforward and then less straightforward reasons. The straightforward reason was it, it, it certainly gave me an absolutely first-class grounding in my discipline. You know, I wanted to know about physics. It certainly taught me physics. But also it taught me several other skills as well, like resilience, because it, it was a pretty tough regime. You know, they had you know, they pretty exacting standards. And it was the first time really ever that I'd been really tested, you know, in the sense of something that I found really challenging to do. And, and at the time, I thought, this is pretty hard. But in retrospect, you could see what they were doing is they, they were actually making sure that you were really well-trained. And, you know, if things are easy, they're probably not stretching you enough. So that, going back to um, some of the points that, you know, you can see if, if, so students really do need, to be, do need to be challenged, but challenged in a constructive way. So that was really important, that broadening the kind of skills. And I would use the word resilience, and resilience is a very important um, asset, which it's, which which you know makes a big difference to people if, if they've got it or they haven't got it. That's a really inspiring story, and giving students and staff actually that insight into lived experience from an individual um, who's in charge of the whole of our organisation <laughs> is, um, I think, an ideal role model for anybody really wanting to progress. So thank you so much. I'm going to move on to the next question now, and I think it leads into what you were talking about beautifully. Do you think there's a dominant culture in higher education? And I'd be interested to know, having gone to Cambridge, whether you yeah. think that. And do you think the, our class system, the British class system, influences this? So that's a, that's a yes and no answer. I'll probably give several yes and no answers uh, today. I think uh, universities are a whole range of cultures, and so it's, it's a difficult question to say there is this particular culture. And because of the nature, it's a very varied organisation. So it's definitely not monocultural. And what I mean by being a varied organisation, if you are asking the same thing of a humanities discipline, what's the culture like to someone from an engineering discipline, from someone who comes from a professional service background... I think you would get probably different answers. So I, I think the first thing to say is there, there is a whole mixture of cultures. Then the question comes is what the, should the culture be? And the key thing around what the culture should be, and this is, and I don't want to, there is a danger that I'll, I'll kind of sound a bit too rose-tinted in what I'm going to say next, but I believe it's what it should be, and I believe to a certain extent it is, which is it should be a meritocracy. So the dominant culture should be a meritocracy rather than anything else. So 
doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, etc., what your interests outside work. None of those things should matter. Now, of course, I'm not so naive as to believe that there aren't other influences. But if I if I think about people who I've seen succeed within the university system, quite a few of them have done it on merit. And so I think I think so I could point to evidence to show that there is that element of the culture. Now, there are also poor bits of the culture because it's clear we've just done a staff survey. Staff survey overall is pretty good, actually. I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it, but I'm not complacent. And it's still clear that certain people don't feel included. Now, the new university strategy has absolutely put people at the heart of it, but it's not only done that. It, and we've, we thought very carefully about this word, we said that we should aim to be an egalitarian organisation. That is effectively another side of a meritocracy, basically. You know, it, it says, you, you know, you progress, we've got equal chances. Like the other side of the coin. Yeah. Okay. It basically is saying that's the way, you know, if, if, you, if you promote people, if you recognise people for what they achieve and not all of the other characteristics... You're then honouring that egalitarian and you're effectively enforcing a meritocracy, basically. Now, that's what we need to aspire to. And I I think, you know, it's clear from the staff survey that some people still don't feel included. And therefore, we have to work even harder to make sure that we do achieve that that aim. But I I think the building blocks are there. But that's what I would say is the dominant culture. Yeah, thank you so much. So you've already spoke about how attending the University of Cambridge you felt like was a very significant thing, increasing your own social mobility. But can you think of maybe a pinpoint or turning point from your childhood where you decided, you know, this is what you wanted to do that helped you eventually increase your social mobility in terms of like, did you always know you wanted to go to university? Um, Was there anything specifically that inspired you? Yeah, well, it goes back to what I said in the previous answer, but I, I, I can expand on it a little bit. The short answer is I didn't know I wanted to go to university, but what became clear to me is when I realised that I wanted to be a scientist, if if you're going to be a scientist, then there's no doubt the conventional route is to go to university. So therefore it became very clear to me quite early on. Because I was was very blinkered uh, as a youngster in my interest in science you know I, I i really loved astronomy i really loved gazing at the color night sky wondering about the universe and all those sort of things black holes and you know uh, this is probably before both of your times actually but there was a big controversy you know it's, it's a it's standard theory now but it, it there was this big controversy about whether there was this thing called the big bang it, it, it's now known it's that it's how the universe occurred but it was a bit, it wasn't always, you know, there's a big, there were two, and I found it fascinating that people could hold different views and have to interpret. So, you know, some people think science is, um, it, it is absolutely, you know, it's just straightforward based on facts. It is based on as many independent observations of the way, but then at some stage there comes interpretation, and I found that fascinating. So from f- quite an early age, I knew, and then it transpired that to be able to do that, if you're going to be a you were going to be a fully-fledged scientist, most fully-fledged, not all, but most fully-fledged scientists would have gone to university and they would have got a PhD. And so that direction of travel was set. Not, it wasn't because, oh, I must... So I didn't sit there thinking, oh, I must go to university, but I was thinking, oh, I want to be a scientist and therefore working out what the route was to be able to do that. So that's what, you know, and that realisation uh, was what then set me on the, 
the course that I had in the first part of my life. So it was a commitment to your own ambition, yeah. kind of. Well, it, it, yeah, but ambition is an interesting thing because, and I think this is really important point because I think, and I, I still think this is absolutely true: is people should do things that they're interested in, and they shouldn't be too worried about other things. You know, if you don't do something interesting, why why are you doing it? Basically, is the is the is a kind of short uh, comment I'd make. So therefore, it was it was being clear about what you're interested in. Not so I wouldn't use the word ambition. I mean, because ambition has has various meanings, but ambition in the sense of being clear what you want to do, mm. and it's something that you want to enjoy doing. As a question, you I think you're going to ask later about what if I what did I know if I knew now. It is the next question. Yeah, so, okay. for it, yeah. so perhaps I can just go on for it because yeah. because that, that there are two or three things I would say about knowing. One of them is you've got to be. I think you've got to have ambition in the sense of knowing what you want to do, but you've also got to be flexible. Because the one thing I've realised is that people who kind of got this big route map, I can tell them it doesn't work like that because things get in the way, like for example opportunity. And risk. So I, I absolutely thought, and, and, and as you know, I've now ended up in universities. I thought I wanted to be, you know, a university lecturer. But I, there was a point when, just after I completed my PhD, when I had a chance to go and work in industry, and it had never occurred to me to go and work in industry. But because the work that they were doing. The, the group that they were doing it was so interesting to me. I thought, well, I'll give that a, I'll give that a go, and I did. And I don't regret it for one second. I, I spent two years working, just under two years working in industry, but it gave me a completely different perspective on the world. So the, the, the thing I would say is, don't have a fixed route map, and be prepared to take. It was a big risk going into industry. I didn't know what it would be like, and I thought about it, etc. But it was actually a great experience. I also did it. I worked abroad in industry as well, so it wasn't in the UK. I worked in Germany, and it was really interesting. So the, the thing I would say is, don't get too blinkered. Don't ha- don't have a one dimensional track. Be be willing to kind of veer off the track and take risks. And things normally work out. I can't say they always work out because there'll be some people who give you examples where they haven't. Of course, that happens. But if you don't take risks and be willing to explore things that you might think are slightly unusual, you'll never... And, and, and what I don't think you should do is you should get to my sort of age and think, oh, I wish I'd had a go at that, because it's then too late. Take the ri- calculated risks and be flexible. That's what I've, I'd, have, I'd have learned. I, I, I completely agree. I always say to my students, all the interesting stuff happens outside your comfort zone. And those these wobbling is worth it because on the other side yeah. is the good stuff. Absolutely. It's where the magic happens. So um, next question, we were thrilled to hear you wanted to talk about accents and surprised, actually. Right. Um, why is this th- something that you're interested in? Because I think it's something you raised yourself. I did. Yeah. And um, in the context of social mobility and HE, what, why does it interest you? Yeah, well, it, it interests me because I think going back to social mobility... Is, is a lot of people, one of the, um, I think, barriers is people assimilate, they, they try and make assessments of other people 
based on pretty superficial information. And the two that stand out to me are appearance, and I mean appearance in the general sense, you know, colour of skin, where you look, all of that type of thing. And the other one, I think, strangely, is accent. So those two kind of very immediately impactful things, because when you meet someone, the first two things you do is you hear something from them, you see them, right? So it's understandable why it happens. But what I think is then people too rapidly translate those cues that those pieces of superficial information into making assumptions about those people. And that, I think, is a, is a lot of the source of the problems we have in all of these things about inclusion. And that I think is too many people make too many assumptions early on rather than knowing what are they like, what can they do. All these other things are irrelevant, basically, to a first-order extent. And, and therefore, and I think accent really interests me because I, I came from a rural background with a, my, my accent's moderated now. It used to be stronger than it was. And I, th- I could see people making assumptions about what that meant. Why should someone with an accent like that be interested in science? Why not, is, 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 the, is the answer, basically. You know, because it's not a, a kind of typical, middle-of-the-road, accepted accent. You know, it's like, it's like I, I know, and again, go, we're going back to the cues that are sent out. For example, if you, if you go back to the 1970s, which is what I'm talking about, the period I'm talking about now, you should see, and you look at all of the kind of people who were reading the news or were the continuity announcers between programmes, I bet they had a pretty... St- well, I, I don't bet, I know. Like an RP. That, that they had a pretty standard... Yeah accepted accent basically you hear it now of course you they're encouraging much more of that so and that should be the way it is because you should it goes back to this meritocracy argument you shouldn't but i think i think so i think the reason i'm really interested i think accent is one of the things that 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 kind of typecasts people as to how people assess them and then what they expect from them and it's totally wrong because you've just got to they're just they're just mechanisms for communicating they're nothing more than that basically they're not there. Uh, they're not any inherent indication of the quality, the ability, or anything. But people sometimes use them as proxies for that, and that's why I find it really interesting. Well, thank you so much for that. We can. We've talked a lot about accents in our social mobility network and with each other on this project. And I know I completely um, resonate with that kind of five minutes when I start a lecture and wait for everyone to just oh, okay, and absorb it, and then we can move on. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you relate to that too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So our next question is, how important is access to lived experience in getting buy-in for, for a cultural shift? What do you mean by getting the lived experience? What, what, what? This, I suppose, kind of your voice saying, I have an accent, people judge me, I went to a comprehensive school, this is my journey, and, and like those people... So, so I, I, I think it's important to realise that more people now are being able to kind of break away from the type of course they might have expected to have followed. So that there, there shouldn't be anything that says, if you start over here, there's only one place or there's only a limited number of places you can end up. 
And I think that's, and, and the more we get people with different journeys going to different places in terms of careers, roles, jobs, that type of thing, I think there's, there's more, there'll be more examples of saying, you know what, I can do that. So it goes back to what I said uh, uh, in one of the previous answers, which is when I was saying, well, I really am interested in what those people are doing, these kind of professors who are giving these Christmas lectures. But as I was saying, I was, I was recognising, again, in a superficial way, people that kind of look like me. Now, one of the things I think that's really important is that there are more examples of more people from different backgrounds of different types doing a whole range of roles. And then people say, you know what, there's no reason I can't do that. So I think it's absolutely crucial that more and more of that happens. Is it important for our universities to work with their local communities in order to widen participation? Yeah, so I think this is a key question because it goes back... I mentioned a few answers ago about government policy, so perhaps this might be the right time to explore that because I think it will, the answer will come out of that. I think it's the right thing to do anyway. That's the first thing to say, and I can explain why. Because universities have changed the way they've looked at their role in the local community, I would say, uh, over the last 20 years. And they've realised much more how important it is to be seen as part of the local community and show what an advantage to have a university. I think COVID, in a strange way, demonstrated that uh, really well. So you'll know that one of the things that this university developed was the saliva testing programme. And the saliva testing program meant that uh, Southampton was able to test uh, for around about a year all of the school children two or three times a week with the saliva testing. That, uh, and that was something that came directly out of the university. It was, it was in partnership with the hospital, which was really important. But the thinking, the ideas came from uh, uh, the, and the initial work came out of the university. Now, that began to show the people locally why it's important, you know, what a research university can do on your doorstep. But there's much more we can do. We have lots of great people. We've got lots of resource in the sense of you know, students and things like that. And therefore, we can have a huge impact on raising aspiration, helping schools in the local area to become, you know, to, to, to meet that ideal, which I said, they, they set people, they give people the opportunity to explore different spaces that they might not have thought, basically. And, and, and universities working with schools, I think, is really important to do that. And I think government policy has shifted uh, with the new Director for Fair Access, now making it clear that rather than social mobility about just getting people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds into um, uh, universities, there are two much more equally important jobs. One is once they're here, uh, which has always seemed obvious to me, but uh, it's more explicit now, once they're here, making sure they succeed. You know, what's the point of getting someone to into a university only to have them fail? I mean, it's just pointless. It's them wasting money, it's you wasting time, basically. So making them succeed, I think, is important. But also getting more people from different backgrounds to realise what opportunities there are. And that, I think, means universities interacting directly with their local community. I'm talking about their school community here, but I'm, I am thinking more... It is broader than that. But I think it's absolutely crucial. And, and, and universities playing an absolutely central and full role 
within uh, local communities, I think, is absolutely crucial. And the new strategy makes that much more explicit than the old one. The old one had it there, but it was it was it was a little bit hidden. You know, it's clearly now one of our major objectives to to play that full civic role for and and for a range of reasons, of which one is improving the kind of life chances and opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't have them within the school system. What kind of incentives or programs are available when you were applying to university? Can you recall any at all? No, none. Wow. I would said none. I think the only thing that was uh, available was that the the school did try and get people who had gone to university in the previous couple of years to come back and say how they'd found university and why they thought it was a good thing. That that's the only thing I can can think of they really said you're on your own <laughs> well it, 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 on your own in the sense of saying that we're going to proactively help particularly those from you know there were no the, the, the programs today are massive in comparison mm. i mean but it goes back to i wouldn't want to underestimate the school was very supportive but it was supportive in the sense of it helped you to achieve your best within in the disciplines it encouraged you to think but it was, it was pretty standard stuff you know it was very helpful and i don't know you know i i'm, I'm very grateful for the schools i went to they were they were mostly very good. But a lot of these other activities that you have today were just not around, basically. Yeah, we could have kind of scooped up a few more. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I, think, I think the difference, I think a key difference is the breadth and the proactive. So in other words, it's like if you put something, it still happens today uh, with, and, and a whole range of things, if you put something on, are you reaching the people who would have done something anyway? Or are you getting to the people, are you getting past those people to the people that really need the help or the extra guidance or the different points of view, etc.? You know, the ones who aren't proactively engaging. And it's always difficult to know that, isn't it? And, and I think we're much better today at kind of being more systematic, reaching out more broadly, etc. You've made little note by this question, so it'll be an interesting one to ask, I think. Do we need a culture in our university where there's no comeback for pointing out hard truths? Yeah, so the reason when I, when I read this question, uh, there's a little comment, is, of course, people need to feel not threatened and they need to feel that they're able to say, particularly if they're being made to feel uncomfortable, that there, you know, why they are and that they are being made. So there should be a culture that welcomes people being able to say uh, things that are difficult and uh, uh, well-meant. The reason my comment is, though, that you have to make an assumption behind that, is that all people are well-meaning. And I'm afraid that you ask me questions about what I know looking back is that most people are well-meaning and the things that they say are, are heartfelt and genuine. But not all people are like that. There are people who like causing trouble uh, for the sake of it and those types of things. So you have to be very careful to make a blanket statement that says everything like this is acceptable. It's acceptable providing everyone's being responsible. But I've learned uh, through it kind of experience that you cannot make that as a, an upfront assumption. That's why I, I would caveat it. Absolutely, universities should be safe spaces. Absolutely, people should be able to talk about hard truths, providing it's on the basis 
that it's it's well meant and genuine, and it's, it's not there for other reasons. I see. I think that leads in really well to our next question, actually. Yeah. So. Um, should symbols of working class culture and obviously this is quite a generalization it does vary but by this I mean things like dialects and fashions like the way you dress um, the way you talk the kind of words language you use or use slang words and things like that should they be normalized and accepted in a university environment yeah I mean I think it goes back it goes back to being egalitarian I mean egalitarian means accepting people as the way they are you know, you should be proud of your heritage the way you are and not feel have to be defensive about it. Uh, and, and therefore, I think, you know, you've used the word like slang and, uh, you know, idiom and all of those types of things. Of course, I mean, I think I absolutely believe in the core values of fairness, egalitarianism and freedom, basically. And if you believe those things, then there are certain things. So you shouldn't try and normalise there's only one way of doing this, there's only one way of being, etc. All of that means you narrow down opportunities and you people, people say, well, they're not accepting me for who I am, basically, or they're not valuing. It goes back to also being about a meritocracy. It's, it's, it's what you achieve and what you do, not the way you go about it or, 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 or the way you present it or the way you speak or the way you look or anything like that. It's what you actually do. And I think, so I think the answer is, is hopefully that people, and I think one of the absolute things that's clear to me about diversity in its broader sense, in it, it, and this conversation is, um, I'm very pleased, is, is, is construing it in its broadest sense, is really the evidence points to when you take people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, and you have an open debate in a, in a, in a respectful uh, and collegial way, you tend to end up with better decisions and better thought processes, basically, because you're, you know, why should the way that one particular group of people or one person looking at something necessarily be the right way uh, for an organisation to go? Therefore, by being able to assimilate and take in a whole range of perspectives, it can only lead to better decisions. Now, you have to sometimes you have to make choice, but choice on the basis of making sure that you've taken the widest possible input and then you've got some sort of process for sifting, you know what, I think that's a good idea because of this and you know what, I don't think that's a good idea. But in other words, it's evidence-based, I think is, is really important. So therefore, all those things, you know, it should be, it should be, it should be welcomed. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with that. I think the way someone talks or the words they used to say, unless it's obviously like swear words or something like yeah, a... Gra- sure. Yeah, sure. That's why <laughs> like I said respectfully. Yeah, respectful. Yeah. Um, I think it's completely irrelevant to the point they're making. I also think it's the same thing for how someone's dressed, like um, especially because for me and my own experience at university, like I have actually experienced classism. Like I was quite optimistic. I thought, yeah, it's, you know, it's supposed to be meritocratic. It'll be okay. Um, for me, it's been from other students kind of like policing my language, not in terms of like me swearing, but like if I've used kind of like abbreviations is what they are really like. It's like in a group chat, in a uni group chat for a society, non-sucio affiliated, just for the record, in case anyone's listening. Um, if I said the word fam or ting, they've kind of like corrected me to like the proper English words. They told yeah. me I can't talk like that um, in the society because 
I can't actually use the word they describe without giving away what society it was. Okay, it's fine. Um, but then also as well, specifically for where I come from, telling me specifically it's sweet of me to admit, using this specific word, admit to coming from a council estate because they personally wouldn't be proud of it. And for me, like I feel like I should be able to wear a tracksuit as you're taught the same and still be taken sure. um, by the quality of my argument Absolutely. and not the way I talk. And I feel like there is this kind of, when we talk about social mobility, there's this idea of like a general definition of what meaning to move from one class class to another and there's this kind of we encourage working class people to assimilate into the dominant like obviously you disagree there is a dominant culture but I personally believe there is a dominant middle class culture within higher education because we think about the origination of talking too fast the origination of higher education it was built for middle class people with more money um so I feel like we do need to work to kind of get rid of this dominant culture Uh, well I think but I think the point you're, you're making is, is a lot it, of points. <laughs> no, it, 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 the key point there is valid in the sense that it, it should welcome the quality of the thinking and the argument, not the details of how it's presented, because that that that's a that's a second order thing. And people, it goes back to one of the questions that we talked about fifteen minutes ago. People make too many judgments on the basis of too superficial set of information, and I think. Being able to put that to one side is absolutely crucial in this uh, in an organisation like this. I think it's it's such an I've got goosebumps and I'm a bit emotional because it's such an important conversation we're having now as three people with regional accents all working or studying at the university and being heard and showing that that dominant culture is not the one way no, to operate. Absolutely. No, absolutely not. No, it's absolutely not. So social class is not yet a protected characteristic under the Equality Act 2010. Do you think it should be? So I thought this was a really interesting question and I scratched my head. And the conclusion I came to was it's a very tricky thing to define and therefore, you know, with a, with a, with a protected characteristic... It needs, to, and even even the protected characteristics have grey edges, you know, have, have fuzzy edges around them. So, so I, I'm kind of going to slightly sidestep your question in the sense of, I think it would be very tricky to define it. What criteria would one, you know, you can often say, I understand that person is X or Y class. To be a protected characteristic in law it needs to be defendable and therefore definable. And therefore, I think it's a pretty tricky one. So I think it's an interesting idea. I can't see how it would be implemented. That's the problem. I think it would have to be very explicit, like saying you shouldn't be proud from coming from a council estate. Or um, I told the story yesterday that my child's piano teacher, she doesn't teach her anymore, so it doesn't matter, um, gave me her Easter homework a couple of years ago and said to me, just so you know, compose is a posh word for right. Uh, <laughs> Which obviously is hilarious. Real, yeah. But, you know, those two examples are, are clearly classist yeah, statements. They, they, they clearly are. And, but, it, but, I mean, for example, you've got, as I say, you've got to be able to define something that means there aren't any grey areas. That's the issue I've got with this. Not that there isn't an issue in terms of some of the behaviours that we've been describing in this conversation. 
but as a protected characteristic, it would be very tricky to define it, I think. Have you, have you, has anyone explored whether it could be defined or not? I think there's a little campaign um, going on somewhere, actually. Um, but there's lots of campaigns for many ninth, is it ninth or eighth protected characteristics. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think it's uh, easier to maybe characterise or define the offence than it is the victim. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, I agree with that, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's easy to understand behaviours... Or, or, or ways people are behaving that use it as a distinction and, and, and you shouldn't be using. But that's different from being able to say this person fits into that characteristic, therefore is protected, if you see what I mean. That, yeah. That's the tricky thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so does the issue of class need to be tackled separately or can it fit into the wider inclusion and diversity? Yeah, ambitions? so that's, that's, an, that's a, also an interesting question. So my view would be that each of these areas has particular specifics that you need to be conscious of. However, the way to deal with it is to say you sweep everything up in having in it being an environment that people feel included and part of, no matter what the background. So you don't do a special thing for this, you don't do a special thing for that, a special thing for the other. You might need to adjust some things in particular cases, but I would much rather you just have a whole clean, whole wide sweeping view that it's it all everything's inclusive. That's what inclusion means, doesn't it? Inclusion means everything. Very true. Yeah. You know, and therefore uh, I, I think it should be. I think that the particular ways different discriminations, different behaviours kind of manifest themselves, I think will be different for different particular sets of characteristics. So you may need particular interventions, but the way you tackle it, I think it's by this absolute commitment to having uh, having a culture, having an organisation that doesn't use uh, or, 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 or kind of preclude or exclude people because of their, or they feel excluded because of their particular characteristics. It's absolutely crucial that the whole mentality of the organisation actually focuses on making sure that none of these things in the end matter. Because when you can come to an institution that says, you know what, it doesn't matter who I am, what I am, where I come from, etc., how I speak, etc., I know I'm going to be fairly treated. That's when you know you've cracked it, basically. What is it that you think universities should be aiming for in terms of ambitions for students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds? Well, I, I think it's an interesting question in the sense of if there's this, there's this concept which I don't fully, I kind of partially understand, which is uh, termed social capital. Uh, and social capital means a whole range of things. It means, you know you've had opportunity it means you've got people who you can go to for advice it means you've got people who can uh, help you you know develop it to use one of your early words your ambitions etc compared to those who don't have those advantages and I think one of the roles of universities is to close that gap and and I think the thing we have to admit there's only so far we can go because you know you'll, you'll never take all of the advantages that everyone has out because some of those are beyond your control but the ones that are within your control and and and, and you see this and uh, you know you 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 know that 
the way people progress into particular professions. The ability, for example, uh, I'll give you a classic example. If you can do uh, an internship, that very much improves your, your likely outcome at the end of a, 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 your, your time at university as to what you go on to do. Many internships are effectively uh, not paid and, uh, and therefore that automatically has an excluding effect on some people who feel, well, I've got to go and earn some money for the next academic year so that I can afford to, you know, the year in study. Universities should do everything they can to make sure those opportunities are open to as many people as possible so that when people do go into the, the job market, some of those advantages are, are, are narrowed. So I think that's the key thing, is to work with colleagues from different backgrounds, particularly those that do not get some of the more extracurricular, beyond-university opportunities to help broaden them, make them more employable, uh, because that, in the end, is what kind of kick-starts people into the, into the next stage of their career. Oh, is it me? Sorry. Sorry. I'm so very involved in your response then because, as you probably know, I'm a career consultant yeah. in the in, um, Careers and Employability Service. So how can we foster an environment where it's okay to talk about background, it's okay to make mistakes, you know, and have a shared license to say the wrong things, you know, use of language, presumptions. I think someone said to me, oh, is your social mobility network a load of common people? And I said, yeah, <laughs> it is actually. You know, because as you said earlier, you can tell the meaning if someone's meaning well or not, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think actually this question's at the trickier end of the market, actually, because of the kind of sensitivities there are around these sorts of things. Many people, because what, what, what would be the most healthy, most productive would be that people more openly talk about it. We've already uh, uh, talked earlier about people being able to effectively call things out. I think that's right. But people worry about if they say the wrong thing, then it's going to, you know, it's going to come back. Uh, and so, so they, they, they become ultra careful. And that, what, what that means is you then don't get proper discussions about uh, uh, these issues. So a very careful balance has to be struck here between allowing know people to make mistakes and therefore it means it goes back to what i sort of talk about being respectful and people so if someone says something which someone feels is inappropriate there are two things that they need to do one is to say i i feel that you said something inappropriate but they also need to do it in a non-aggressive way but also do it in a way that explains why from their perspective i think one of the things i would this is a slight aside so forgive me for a second I would, one of my favourite books of all time is To Kill a Mockingbird um, by Harper Lee, basically. And there's a line in it, Atticus Finch is explained to his rather young daughter after, because uh, it, it clearly is about racism. It's, it's a whole story about racism, basically. And her, her, the daughter, the young daughter, has witnessed a conversation which she doesn't understand in any way. And... And, of course, Atticus goes back to, goes back to classism, actually, what we've been talking about in part of this discussion. Clearly, Atticus Finch and his children are very middle class as a lawyer, whereas the person who's speaking was, was, was pretty working class and very white and very racist. 
And she's completely nonplussed. This daughter's completely nonplussed. And Atticus Finn says to her, well, what you've got to do is you've got to get into his skin and understand it from his perspective. Empathise. Yeah, well, not only empathise, but just don't even need to empathise. You need to, you need to see why are they feeling... So you know, when, says, when someone says something that, you know, and again, it goes back to another, it says something that you find upsetting or offensive, there are, it could be that someone's deliberately trying to do that, or it's because they've just, it's just a slip of the tongue, or it's because they don't understand your perspective on the matter. And it could be anywhere in that spectrum of uh, uh, where you're coming from. But you've got to try and get into their skin and understand it. So, and everyone needs it, and both sides of the conversation need to do that transfer, basically. And I think if more of that happened, then I think there would be the kind of ability to have this kind of environment where people could say things, people could then constructively and respectfully say, you know what, I don't think that's the right thing. You know what, that's upset me a bit because of this. And the other person say, yeah, well, I hadn't thought of it that way. And, and not to kind of quickly escalate it into high levels of upset and all those things. Now, again, what someone could argue is easy for me to say in a position like mine, and I understand that, and it's not easy. You know, as, as, you've, as I've changed position within organisations... I have to take that advice I was giving about looking at it from you know the Atticus Finch position. So I understand it's difficult for some people. But I think if we can have an environment where it's okay to talk about these things, people don't think then they'll be judged or that there'll be a significant difficulty in comeback, that's going to allow us to get into a position as an organisation that's much better. I also do understand the kind of um, calling out these things, even when well-intentioned, because I understand the frustration that these kind of ideas, like especially if we're talking about things like racism, um, obviously I understand that I'm going to have a limited perspective on this as myself, like I don't experience racism. Right. But when we're talking about things like that and kind of looking at maybe to understand the point of view, I think we are talking about illogical um, viewpoints as much as they may be built from experience is the kind of the foundation the foundation of racism is racism like it's not as if they've had justifiable experiences which then contribute contributes that opinion they've had experiences which then they've kind of mixed with their racism to come up with racist conclusions but I also do understand um, the also like the tendency of groups which are struggling um, to kind of point the finger at each other and not want to help each other because they are thinking, well, you're gaining it at my expense, um, right. that kind of thing. So I think um, my favourite book ever is Women, Race and Class by Angela Davis. And she talks about a lot of the intersections in the civil rights movement in America with the kind of um, suffragist, suffragette movement in America and the kind of intersections how... Um, black men and white women need to understand that they're both the oppressor and they're both the oppressor and they need to work together um, to kind of do this. So I do understand that, but I also do think it also, in my opinion anyway, it also still isn't okay to like just say something that's outwardly racist or outwardly classist because by that point, it's not just something you're thinking, it's something you're sharing and something you're trying to enforce upon other people. But that's just... And it can become become something you're living because when it's persistent, it can be very wearing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think everyone goes back to this point. That's what needs to be pointed out because... And that's why I said there was a spectrum Mm, of of where people are coming from. Some, you know, it's deliberate. Some, it's just lazy. And some, you know, lazy use of language. And some, it's just that it's never occurred to them. Yeah. You know, and it could be anywhere in in, in that spectrum. And it's trying to understand that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never right in any of those circumstances. I'm not saying, but 
you've got to try and understand which of those it's coming from because one is much easier to deal with in terms of correcting it than the other. I think it's a great ambition to kind of to operate like that and, and, and have that shared, um, to have a good communication. Okay, so we've come to our, our last question. Why do you think graduates from non-traditional backgrounds, we don't use that term very much nowadays, but um, it's the best one I could think of for this question, yeah. um, very often earn less than their graduate yeah. role across the sector. Um, and what do you think can be done to support a positive change for yeah. these graduates? Well, I, I, I think I've partially answered this question a couple ago because I think it is absolutely to do with this concept of social capital. I think it's the advice, and social capital is a very broadly conceived idea, but it means things like uh, it means things like the opportunities you've had, the connections you've got. It means almost the confidence that you have that, that builds on this. There's a whole range of factors that go into it, and I think that's what. So, so people come from a, as you you word a non-traditional background will have less of those advantages and therefore it translates into the lower ambition to start with or it translates into not knowing whether so I, I, I said in answer to quite an early question that you know if I think about my career it's been about you know things that have opportunities have come up some people can have more opportunities because of the background they're from because they just they're just aware of more of them and all of these things contribute so yeah, contribute to this unevenness, and it's those that we and we there's some of those we can never will never be able to change. You know the fact that you know you've got a you, you've got family connections that hear about a, a, an opportunity because your family move in those type of circles. There's nothing we can do we we can do about that, but what we can do is we can try and bring more opportunities, make more of them visible. We can make more internships by saying it isn't a choice between you having to go and earn some money here to be able to do a, you know, a further, you know, a later year. Or you know, So there's lots of things we can do, and I think it's all of those reasons about this whole concept. Of, I'm very interested in this concept of social capital. Yeah, actually, um, my project, uh, my Generation Career Coaching Programme, is focuses on building social capital of um, those who are the first member of the family to go to university or if they don't know if the first member of the family to go to university which you know you could presume they haven't got all the advantages if they don't know yeah and um yeah we, we've kind of focused on particularly on um gaining access to employers who are looking yeah for um students on a social mobility journey which is it which is a great new thing i think yeah good but i think that's our questions uh, finished for today yeah thank you so much you've been really insightful well, well it was a very interesting conversation so i hope there are some things in there that are of interest to uh, you and uh, your listeners and uh, it was a pleasure to come along today so thank you for the opportunity thank you Mark. thank you so much yeah, great the class ceiling podcast Smashing the class ceiling.